Welcome to the Nobles You podcast. Thanks for listening, and we are excited you're with us. My name is Mike Kalin, the Director of Teaching and Learning at Nobles, and I'll be your host today. Uh, first, as always, want to explain the purpose of the podcast and what we're hoping to provide you. So on the podcast, we speak with faculty and staff members, all involved with our work related to teaching and learning, academic technology, DEI culture and practices, socio-emotional learning, and more. Our faculty and staff here have a great deal of expertise on a wide range of subjects, and through the podcast, we hope to learn from our guests who provide insight into the opportunities and challenges in the fascinating and complex world of education. So today, we're excited to speak with Talia Sokol and Emily Traggart, co-directors of our library here at Nobles, with lots of experience working with both students and adults in the space. Talia and Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Hi, Mike. Thank you. All right, let's do this. So I wanted to start early. And sort of curious about both of your reading habits during your childhood years. Um, were you both voracious readers as children, or did that passion for books come later? Um, yeah, for me, I definitely was a voracious reader. But when I think about how that connects to my career in libraries, I think what I more so was was a voracious learner. And that's what I love so much about being a librarian is that you constantly get to learn. And so I think that um, you can see that in in my childhood passion for reading and learning. Um, I was also a voracious reader. I taught myself to read when I was like three years old. Uh, my first full sentence was read a book. I would go around to all the adults near me and hold up books at them and say, read a book. So I think that that illustrates my early love of reading. Um, I would read anything and everything that you could would give me to the point where in first grade, uh, one of my teachers didn't believe me that I was already reading chapter books. And I actually remember being like, so upset that she just didn't trust that I could already read uh, these books because I loved reading so much. Uh, so yes, I have always been a super voracious reader. All right, library, librarians to come then. All right, so this next question is somewhat self-interested as a parent of two young kids, but do you remember any of the books that you read either as an early child or I guess, you know, in the elementary school years? Um, yeah, so I have a couple that come to mind immediately. The first is the series, The Boxcar Children, which I absolutely loved. Um, and then the second is this book called Mandy, uh, the author of which is Julie Andrews Edwards, which is Julie Andrews' real name. Julie Andrews, of course, being Mary Poppins. Um, and it was about a girl who's in an orphanage and she finds this little cabin on the property and turns it into her own sort of home. So I think a lot of the books that I loved when I was little were weirdly about orphans making their own special home. Uh, but those were two of my favorites that I can remember. I love Boxcar Children. For me, I was really a sci-fi fantasy kid. I loved Redwall, the Redwall series. I loved um, Harry Potter. I loved Animorphs. And then as I got a little older, I also read a lot of nonfiction. Um, I really loved nonfiction about history and language and just learning about the world. Very cool. I got to throw out the Hardy Boys as a oh, series yeah. that very much engaged me as a as a young reader. All right, so let's fast forward to your current roles as co-directors of the library. What are you enjoying most about serving as co-directors? Oh, man, there's so much. This job is really wonderful. I mean, working with Talia and partnering with Talia is really fantastic. Um, I think I one of the things that I love the most about being in the library is just the programmatic possibilities that we have. Our our scope is so broad in the school and we're able to partner with so many different parts of the school and support so many different people 
in the school, um, from students to faculty to staff to grads to parents, and um, meeting everyone's needs and, and trying to constantly evolve and and see how the library and our mission to you know connect people with information with each other can can fit into the school's mission. Yeah, I would agree. I would say definitely the collaboration piece is really important and wonderful. Um, when we first sort of proposed the idea of having co-directors, uh, it was really it was well received. And so I I mean, I think we both really appreciate how open and supportive Nobles and the administration has been of the library. Um, most many school libraries only have one person in charge. And so to have both of us be able to sort of work together and then, of course, be able to work with Heidi and Ella in a variety of different capacities has just been really amazing. And I think that having us in this dual role has also allowed us to do other things as well in the community, which has then been able to have us bring those connections that we make outside of the library, uh, whether it's working on the textbooks or coaching crew or any of the variety of other things that we do, bringing those connections back into the library. Yeah, it's been really neat to see how integrated both of you and, and the whole librarian staff are into the community, I, I guess, to your point, Talia. Uh, so in addition to a lot of the opportunities and exciting opportunities in the library, what are some of the challenges that you confront as librarians? So I think we're lucky in that I don't think we have like massive amounts of challenges. I know that our colleagues in other schools have, might have a different answer for this question. I mean, I think always this space can be challenging. We have this amazing, beautiful, wonderful space that we love so much, and we could use even more space, right? There's so many kids here. Um, we could use more variety, but you know, what we have has worked so, so well so far, but, you know, I think wanting to have even more space could be, that That would be one of the challenges that I would say. What do you think, Emily? Yeah, I agree. I think that um, there's always in this field, there's always a surprising amount of change, both internally in the nobles community and externally in the field at large. And so keeping up with that is is a challenge and it's not a bad challenge. It's just something that we always kind of have to, you know, never rest on our laurels, but always be thinking, what is the next need? What is the next way that the library could support this community? And how can we all grow as professionals um, throughout our careers in ways that will help the school and ourselves? And then the other thing I think is just balancing the needs of so many groups and constituencies, which is a great joy, but is also a challenge sometimes. I can imagine. I mean, I think it seems like a lot of complex, different tensions and, you know, expectations definitely. And, and from my, my vantage point, come at you almost on a daily basis. Um, to speak to a little bit about external challenges mm -hmm. and to speak to the political and cultural context a little bit. Um, I, I don't need to tell both of you that there's been a major uptick in book bans among many school districts across the country in recent years. Just curious about your perspective on the bans and how you navigate those. Um, well, I think, first of all, at Nobles, we've been very lucky with things like this. But I also think that it is um, plenty of these challenges and bans have been attempted in New England and Massachusetts. It is not just a problem for other places in the country. So we're always very aware of um, being really secure with our collection policy and with our collection decisions. Um, we've worked with, you know, with Kathy to create a um, procedure for book challenges and how they'd be dealt with internally. And, you know, I think a lot of these come from 
you know, places of fear, places of not understanding, and to a degree, some self-centeredness. And there's a lot else going on there. Um, but it's something we always have to be aware of, even though we've been incredibly fortunate. And I also think, I think Tali would agree with me, I feel very supported by the school. And should something like this arise, I think that we we feel secure in how the school would respond. Um, but I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that for sure. I mean, I think the difference between book bans in places like public libraries and even public schools is that as a independent school, uh, sort of the the format or the way that somebody would go about banning a book or trying to ban a book or trying to censor a book or remove a book from the shelf or from the curriculum is a little bit different, right? We don't necessarily have to answer to external groups um, because of the kind of institution we are, um, which is a good thing. And I definitely agree with Emily and that we, I feel like if something were to happen internally, uh, we would definitely feel really supported by the school. I mean, I think a piece of it is making sure that the books that and the materials that we have in the collection represent our community and represent what we think the community needs and represent what we think we want to be providing to the community. And so if we can stand by all of our materials and books in our collection, then hopefully there wouldn't be an issue because we put so much thought into the things that we are purchasing. Um, And so hopefully that is reflected in what our community sees on the shelves as well as what they see digitally. I'm wondering if you could go into a little bit more depth about that process. You know, what happens when there's a new book available? Again, just in this context where there is a decent likelihood that maybe some either student or parent may disagree with the selection. What's the process? Is it you and Emily having a conversation? Is it, you know, going through a protocol? Like, how do you decide what gets in our collection? That's a really good question. And actually, so the first sort of like person who does all of that work and does an amazing job at it is Ella Stein. Um, She's sort of the person who does all of our collection development, which is obviously the term for developing the collection and figuring out which books and which materials to purchase. And so she, that is a significant piece of her job. She looks at different sources, magazines, uh, other websites that re that recommend and review books. Um, and so she kind of comes up with preliminary lists of books and materials that we'll be buying. And so she's looking at a variety of different aspects of all of the books that we're thinking about purchasing. Is it something, if it's fiction or if it's, you know, Uh, pleasure read? Is it something that would interest our community? Is it something that we know is on a topic that people are already reading books about? Um, If it's nonfiction, is it something that's going to be supporting the curriculum or is it something that's going to be addressing an issue uh, that people find are relevant? So we're already thinking about sort of how this can be something that reflects our community's needs and wants. And because of course we don't have like an infinite budget, but we do have a very generous one. We're able to sort of create these culled lists based on all of the books that are being released over the course of the year and figure out sort of from there what the best possible like books to purchase are. What would you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I also think we see our collection holistically Mm -hmm. and we're constantly looking to improve certain sections of our curricula or of our collection, replace things. And so I think also the other end of collection development is important to note, which is weeding or deaccessioning books. Um, And that's a constant process for us as well. And to some degree that, especially in the fiction area, that's often... um, more of just, uh, you know, this was published six years ago and it hasn't been checked out in five years. And 
we're going to make room for something new on the shelf that's a similar, you know, similar author or a similar topic, and it's just going to move on. And then that goes all the way down to sometimes in the nonfiction sections, we go through with more of a fine-tooth comb and we think about not only how long has something been here or how long has it been not checked out, but also what is the appropriateness of this content for our curriculum, also for our community, and for um, just being up to date and accurate. And um, that's a constant process as well. So we have this collection development and then this, this weeding or deaccessioning that really go hand in hand. I appreciate you sharing that. And it's actually incredibly impressive to, to know and understand the thought that goes behind a purchase. I think as maybe a lay person, you go up to your library and they just have books. You never really think about how they got there or when they come or when they go. So it's actually quite fascinating to hear you both speak about that process. Um, shifting gears a little bit, you know, when I walk into our reading room at Nobles, this isn't always the case, but often so many of their students, not surprisingly, have their smartphones out. And whether it be in the reading room or the alcoves at Nobles or likely at home, it's not just our students. It seems like all adolescents are very hooked into their smartphones. And I'm just curious, for those that have a love of reading, like what strategies do you think we can employ to try and inculcate that love in our students so that they're not totally obsessed with being on their smartphone 24 hours a day? Yeah, I mean, I think even adults have this problem, right? The smartphone is those little hits of dopamine that feel so good, like a fast food hamburger. Um, and there are other things in the world, you know, like connecting with people and more long-term attention type activities like reading that are more uh, sort of deeply enjoyable. But it's hard when you've get, got a, gotten used to those short bursts of attention. I think one of the things is, you know, you can't force anyone to read. And we definitely don't have that attitude here in the library. Um, but I think there's a lot of things, and Talia can speak to some of them as well, a lot of things that we do to encourage reading, to make space for reading in the school. Um, we do a lot of reader's advisory, which is talking to people one-on-one -on -one about books. We also think really, try to think really creatively about the displays and the books that we are putting out in the library and what are we offering people and how are we showing them what's available to them and helping them find something that they connect with. I think there's also a relationship piece to this is getting to know students um, and also other community members. And when we're purchasing, we know, oh, okay, there's definitely a few people who would love this book. And sometimes we're thinking generally, but sometimes we're thinking really specifically of these three students might like this book. Uh, and then connecting with those students and giving that to them and, and sort of creating this place where they feel that we are seeing them and seeing their needs and seeing what they like is really great. I think also the school, you know, potentially could, could create spaces in the schedule for reading, you know, maybe some community times or, or something where we have a drop everything and read, things like that. Um, and I think teachers are great partners here too, because students really trust their teachers and they trust teacher recommendations and they love talking with teachers about books and reading. But I don't think there's an easy answer to this. I think it's just creating an environment where there's a lot of accessibility and there's a lot of kind of personal personal recommendations. I don't know. What else would you add? Tom? Yeah, I mean, I think we do have a lot of readers at this school, both adults and students. Yes. So I think we do have a lot of kids 
um, who love to read, I think one of the biggest issues that they face is they just don't have enough time to do it. Um, so I think, you know, thinking really broadly and holistically about time, how we use our time is something that is a, you know, that's not something that we're going to be able to solve here in the library. But in the meantime, like Emily was saying, creating those personal relationships, those personal connections. I think the more that we are enthusiastic and talk about books, the more everyone in the community sort of picks up on that. Like I'm thinking about the literary lunch that we had like at the end of last semester. So a couple of days before the end of the semester, you know, we ordered, I don't know, 15 pizzas, put out a bunch of books um, and just invited kids to come and tell us about the books they like, look at the books that we think they they that we thought that they might enjoy, um, and then check books out. And it was really successful. So the point that we had teachers saying, can we come back tomorrow, um, you know, for the last day of class and just have the kids each take a book out for the uh, for over the break. And so obviously, that's not something we can do every single day. But having these activities and these op- opportunities for kids to sort of talk to us about books and hear about other books that they might like, definitely increases the, you know, them taking books from the library, them reading, them coming to talk to us about what they love. And then recommending those books to friends and mm-hmm, for yeah, sure. And creating a culture where people are talking about books and, and reading them. Yeah. I really admire all the work that you've put in from afar. And uh, Emily or Talia, I think one of you mentioned the displays that come up and they're often different themes. You mentioned the pizzas. So there's definitely so much work coming out of the library library and it makes it so that as we're talking about the role of the librarian, it seems like it's much more than just checking books in and out. And you guys have proven that to the nth degree (laughs) in terms of the way that you think about community at Nobles and creating a community of books. It's been really, really neat to watch and observe. And I have no doubt that that will continue and even expand. And I think it's absolutely also just critical because we're trying to all combat the electronic devices all the time. Yeah. So speaking of electronic, devices. This is a question that's come up in our interviews quite a bit. So as generative AI over the past year has become more pervasive, how do you think it's going to impact the world of librarians and or libraries? It's such a good question. And I feel like there's a million different answers, right? I think there's both many positives and many negatives to the the world, you know, to the emergence of generative AI, specifically within the library. I mean, one of the things that we think about obviously all the time is like where kids are getting their sources, how they're citing their sources, attribution, things like that. And what that looks like in this changing landscape when it's not necessarily so clear where the information is coming from. And so you can speak more to this. Emily actually worked really hard to come up sort of with our AI policy and how, or the AI like library citation recommendations, I suppose is what you would call it. Um, And that's been really interesting. And that's one aspect, but there's obviously a zillion more applications. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I agree that there's there are a lot of potentials, potential positives. Um, I think especially in the research process could be really interesting to involve AI in that research process in this, especially the sort of topic generation and source ideas and things like that. And then but then you're really moving away from it to do the actual research. It's it's very interesting. Um, yeah, in our in the policy that we created, it's it's less of a policy and more of a collection of um, recommendations for how to cite, how and when to cite AI use. And I think this is an evolving area as well. <clears throat> but I think with citation, we're always really concerned not with you know where the period goes and 
what's capitalized, but rather with the mindset that students bring to citation and the idea that, you know, we're not just sort of meeting the lowest bar, which is avoiding accusations of plagiarism, but we're also thinking about the place that our intellectual work has within the world of intellectual work, even if it's just a short paper or it's not anything that a student would think of as groundbreaking. I think it's really important to give credit to other people's work and also to understand that your work stands on the shoulders of those people. So I think with AI, it's a really interesting because it's not people, though, of course, the data sets that the AI is drawing from mm-hmm. is people in the end. Uh, <laughs> so it's like, where does AI fall? Um, and, you know, for example, Chicago Turabian suggests that you um, list AI as a personal interview. And what does that mean? That's so interesting to me. And so it's, it's a little creepy. Yeah, it's a little creepy, right? <laughs> um, it's fascinating. And I'm really excited to hear to see it evolve. I think that, you know, there are lots of pitfalls, but there are lots of really interesting applications as well. And also just more broadly, not necessarily with our work, but the idea of um, how could this create accessibility, like helping people access information who did, weren't able to before through chatting with AI? Like, could you have AI library chatbots that could help you navigate a university's um, databases and explain what the databases are for and, you know, something like that. I, I think that could be a really interesting application as well. I have no easy answer. So I asked the question about generative AI, one of the most difficult ones out there, uh, and also an intense question. So to lighten this up a little bit, as we get close to the end, any recommendations for books that you'd like our listeners to check out? So do you want us to recommend like educational books or like books that we personally have read recently that but, we love? Your, your own passion. Our We've own talked passion. education for a while. Okay, good, just, good, good. Just great books that you think listeners might want to read. Okay. So, well, unsurprisingly, I think we both read a lot. Yeah. We have very different reading, I think, reading interests. Interest. Yeah. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. One of the books that I really loved that I read sort of at the end of 2023 over winter break uh, was called The Berry Pickers by Amanda Peters. And it is about this little girl. It takes place, starts in the 60s. And she's, you know, like four years old. And she is part of a family um, who are from Canada. They're uh, part of the Mi'kmaq tribe. And they come every summer to Maine to pick the blueberries. And she goes missing. And that's the start of the book. Um, and I don't want to tell you anymore because it's really good, but it is, uh, you know, it's about family and there's a little bit of a mystery, but it's also really about identity. Um, it's about, you know, nature versus nurture. I like absolutely love that. Okay. I'll go nonfiction then. Um, I read, I mean, I feel like I read about half and half, but a book I read last year that I'm still thinking about, um, is a nonfiction book called how to hide an empire. And it's about the history of the United States holdings outside of the continental United States. It starts with um, Guano Islands in the 19th century, which you'll have to look up and see what that is, um, all the way to our current, you know, in issues with Puerto Rico and, and Guam and all of that. And it was just really illuminating to me, a totally new perspective on the history of the United States. 
that was super fascinating and I thought really well written, really accessibly written. Uh, it was kind of a page turner, even though it was like 500 pages long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, yeah, that's a book that I've loved in the last few months that I would recommend. I appreciate the shared recommendations. You guys are both great endorsers for each of your respective books and hopefully folks will check them out. All right. Anything else in your mind as we finish up, as you think about the library or your role within it? I mean, I would just invite anyone who wants to come and chat with us about books. I mean, those are two book recommendations, but we can give endless book recommendations. People who want, you know, to talk to us about collaborating and with their classes, people who want to talk about resources. I would just say we're here. We love connection. We love collaboration. One of the things we didn't mention was that if, you know, somebody wants a book, we are happy to most of the time order it for them for uh, to purchase and to put it in the library. So just, yeah, we're here and please come, you know, hang out with us. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I think that um, we really, the, the strength of the library is the, comes from the strength of the nobles community. And so collaborations, like Talia said, are our bread and butter. And we would just love to hear how we can help, even if it's kind of outside the box. We like to solve problems and and think about things in new ways. That's what keeps our jobs exciting. So thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Before we finish up, just a quick plug. Hopefully you enjoyed the cool conversation with Talia and Emily, learning a ton about the inner workings of our library. Uh, And there are some other great podcasts that we have out there with respective faculty on campus who are also very thoughtful. That's the Nobles You podcast available on either Apple or Spotify. And hopefully also we'll see you next time. And again, thank you again to Talia and Emily for sharing your wisdom. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for having us.